0: We are in Philippians. And today we're going to look at chapter 3. Uh, for those of you visiting and for, just to remind you, we are doing a series called Joyful Christian Living. We're looking at the book of Philippians and what Paul has to say about us as Christians and how we can live and how we can live joyfully despite the circumstances that we might find difficult in our lives. And that's the whole theme. And so here we're going to get to uh, the first three verses, four verses of uh, the, chapter 3. And uh, Paul says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Remember, the whole theme of this book is joyful Christian living. Now, this is the, he's going to really focus on this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's a safe, it is safe for you, or it's a safeguard for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Very powerful, short little portion that we're going to look at this morning. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into it. Father, I want to thank you for your Word. I want to thank you, Lord, that you've ministered to us by your Spirit. We thank you for the time of worship where you spoke so clearly through different people and encouraged us. Thank you for the gift of music where we can just connect with you and sing of our love. And I want to thank you, Lord, now as we worship over your Word, that you would bring life to us, that you would remind us of the, the absolute peace and joy that comes from resting in Jesus Thank you for this word that is life. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to communicate simply and well this morning, that everyone would be encouraged and leave this place with their hearts lifted up. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So remember, we've kind of just concluded chapter two. And in chapter two, the beginning of chapter two, what does Paul say? He says, I want you to have the same attitude as Jesus, all of you believers. Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he laid all of that aside and he humbled himself and he came and he lived as a servant amongst you. He lived as a slave amongst you. And then he gives some examples of the very thing that he's talking about through two people, Epaphroditus and Timothy. And he says, actually, these guys are the very example of what I've been talking about in Jesus uh, this is the kind of thing you should look for in followers of Jesus. People like Timothy, people like Epaphroditus who are humble, and they just get on and love the, the people of God and serve them. And he says, those, those are the kind of people you want to follow. You want to, They are examples to you. And we also looked last week at the amazing example that Paul is, really, in, in being so generous in exalting these other men and saying, actually, this is not my thing. This is our thing. We are a team, and I'm working with other people to see the kingdom of God come, and even though Paul is the apostle, even though he's the one who is the most gifted teacher and all that stuff, he, he lifts up these other guys and elevates them and says, They are men that are working with me, they are co laborers, he says of um, Epaphroditus co workers, co labors co soldiers. I am with them in this mission for Christ, and so. He now turns to speak to the Philippian church about a group of people that are a constant source of pain in his ministry. And they are called the Judaizers. Uh, And um, he's very direct in this passage and very strong in this passage. But I want to begin by saying this. In every age, if you look at church history, the Christian gospel tends to be counterfeited and replaced by some kind of imitation Christianity. Uh, which is a mixture of a number of things. Often it can be a mixture of national religion. It can be a mixture of ritual and moralism. And it kind of tries to replace the gospel. And Christians over the years have had to fight this. And this certainly happened in the first century. And we can see a number of counterfeits today that people think are the real thing, but are not the real thing. And I want to also say that all of us tend towards religion. All of us tend to be religious, and so I want to say to you straight up this morning that even Christian moralism, even Christian religiosity, if I can use that word, is not the same as salvation by faith. It's not the same as resting in the work of Christ in your life. And Paul over and over in his writings, he deals with this over and over again. And we've studied some of these things in the last number of years. If you look at the book of Galatians, the whole book of Galatians is about the freedom that has been won for us in Christ, that we don't have to be legalistic um, in in any kind of ritual way, because Christ has brought freedom for us. And that's the whole book of Galatians. Paul also speaks about that in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 2, Colossians 2, Titus chapter 1. All over the, the, the letters that he writes is this amazing, amazing uh, story that he repeats over and over again, that we are free in Christ, that he has bought our freedom, that uh, all of our sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus, and what a wonderful name it is, that we can rest in the the work of Christ in our lives, as we sang this morning, and we don't have to be anxious about doing the right thing, because when we simply love Jesus, the right thing flows out of our lives in an extraordinary spirit-filled way. And that's the Christian life from the inside out. And so I believe that Paul is saying that Christian legalism is not Christianity at all. Even as a Christian, if you're relying on what you are doing, that's not true Christian faith. True Christian faith is resting in what God has done and trusting that from the inside, He transforms you and you live differently. It's a very different thing. And so... There are a couple of things I want to point out here. Before Jesus came, salvation was nationalistic. What do I mean by that? Well, nearly all of the believers were found in the nation of Israel. It it was nationalistic. Every male was required to be circumcised as a sign of being part of God's people. And in addition to that, every believer was required to obey the law of Moses as fully and as as uh, accurately as they could. And yet, after the coming of Jesus, there's this magnificent change happens, and the Israel of God has become something completely different. And I'd like to show how Paul points that out in this portion. And so, after Jesus comes, the first thing we, we, we must note is that salvation was no longer nationalistic. The people of God were no longer identified with just one nation. And Michael Eaton puts it like this. He says, Israelite Israelite cultural symbols were abolished as badges of salvation. In other words, Hasidic Jews would have tassels, they would have their hair cut in a certain way, they would wear certain clothes, they would wash in a certain way. Why? Those were symbols of the fact that they were the people of God. And those symbols, what they did culturally, pointed to the fact that they were set apart, that they were God's people. After Jesus, that no longer applies. Secondly, salvation is no longer ritualistic. Circumcision was no longer required to be a member of God's people, and in the Old Testament, even baptism was a channel for salvation. But now it becomes simply the physical, visible expression in, by faith of the promise of God. But it's not a, no longer a ritual by which you are saved. It is just an expression of faith that you have put your trust in the living Christ. Thirdly, salvation is no longer legalistic. Salvation comes as you simply rest your life and your faith in the completed work of Christ. It no longer comes by what you do, by obeying rules. All Christian obedience, as I said this morning, comes by faith. As we simply respond and uh, by faith, Persistent obedience comes in our lives, and Paul actually says uh, everything that is not motivated by faith is sin. And and so it's a very simple thing. So I say that to you knowing that uh, when we talk about Christian obedience, there is a definite content that we are speaking about. We can put it into words. We can describe what we mean when we say we need to be obedient, and in that sense it is defined. But it's no longer just defined by the Mosaic law. Why do I say that? You know, the Ten Commandments, do this, do this. Why does I say it's no longer obedience is no longer just defined by those ten things? Why? Because Jesus said it over and over again to His disciples. What did He say? He said, It is written, or Moses said this, but I say to you. So He's saying, yeah, there is the moral law in the, in, in the law of Moses, but there's something much higher that God is calling to us, us to by grace. Yes? And so he says things like this. He says, it is written in the law, do not commit adultery. Jesus acknowledges the law, the moral code, how we should behave. Do not commit adultery. And then he takes it to a whole different level by grace. And he says, but I say to you, even if you look with lust in your heart at another woman, you have already committed adultery with her. Yeah, that's a challenging thing, isn't it? Uh, The Instagram generation needs to know that, needs to hear that. Even when you look at lust, with lust in your heart, at a half-naked woman. I I was saying to our staff, um, I'm on Instagram, right? And I think Instagram, the more I see it, the more I think it's a nasty thing. Nasty. Nasty. I'm looking at the travel section because I like different places. I'll click on the travel button just to see uh, what pictures of places I can can travel. What comes up, first of all? You think it's pictures of the Philippines or Thailand? What comes up first? First thing that comes up, naked woman, half-naked woman in bikinis on a beach in Thailand. Just to entice you. Just to get you to click. Jesus says, even if you lust after someone, you have committed adultery with that person. Guys, it's really hard, isn't it, people? It's hard. We, we live in a world which is tugging at our eyes and our hearts and trying to get us to live in an ungodly way. And I'm saying to you, by the Spirit, we have to learn to not live like that. Jesus says, it is written, but I say to you, much higher call by grace. Not just following the ten things, but acknowledging the ten things. Yes, the fullness of those ten things has been completed in Christ, but there's a much higher way that comes by grace that He's calling us to. Now nobody loves me. (laughs) And so, you see, the Judaizers, these guys that had come into the church, had said to these, these Philippians, guys, you know what Paul is saying about the gospel? That's, a, that's, that's cool. But you must still become Jewish. You must still eat the certain food that we say you should eat, and you should also be circumcised. And this is why Paul is so annoyed with these guys. And he gives, he gives a true definition of Christian faith in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. What does he say? He says, it's a matter of worshiping God by the Spirit, That's true Christian faith. Glorifying in Christ Jesus, second thing. And having no confidence in your own flesh. That's true worship. That's true faith. And so I put it to you, these Judaizers that Paul is addressing. And also in our own lives, we have to have a look where we tend to be religious and what we tend to depend on, the things that we tend to push into. What do you tend to push into in your life? What do I tend to push into in my life? Just doing the right thing. Just obeying the rules, paying my tithes, coming to the prayer meeting, coming once, twice a month to church just to show that I've done my duty, that kind of thing? Or are we pushing into resting in the completed work of Christ? Worship that comes from the heart. Asking God to transform us on a daily basis. That's what I'm trying to say. We can all tend to be religious. Paul's saying, religious? Actually, look at the language of of Paul as we go forward, and you'll see he he doesn't have anything good to say. (laughs) He doesn't have anything good to say about religion. And how can we identify religiosity in our own lives? How, how can we identify it? Well, it's, first of all, it's joylessness. It's joylessness. When you are not feeling joyful in your life, let's ask some questions. Why are we are feeling like that? Remember, what has Paul already concluded in chapter 2, verse 17? He said, I am being poured out as a drink offering. Remember, we looked at that in detail. I'm being poured out uh, over the, the, the sacrificial offering of your life. I'm being added to that, and I rejoice. And I'm asking you to rejoice with me. Remember, he said that already. So he's saying this, that even all the troubles that Epaphroditus has been through, and the way that Paul has affirmed him, he brings all of those things together, and he says, finally, he says, now, from now on, this is what I want you to do. I want you to rejoice, friends. I want you to to take courage. Rejoice despite everything that is happening in Philippi. Rejoice. I rejoice, Paul says, in spite of everything that has happened to me in Rome. Despite the fact that I am in prison. Despite the the fact that there is dissension in, in Rome. Despite the fact that there's persecution and opposition. I rejoice and I'm asking you, my friends, to rejoice in the same way. Despite Brexit, despite we don't know what's going to happen, despite illness, Andrew, despite what is happening in Andrew's life, he rejoices. He's been an example to us of that, hasn't he? Come on. Why? That comes by faith. That doesn't come by religion If you're a religious person, when you go through hard times, what happens? Oh, God, you don't love me. I've been doing the right thing, and despite me doing the right thing, you've allowed this thing to happen with me. What's wrong with you, God? That's the response of religion. That's not the response of faith. Faith says, despite all, yet my God, slay me, yet will I rejoice. Yes, this is Christian faith. Deeply challenging. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying to his friends, rejoice. Live joyfully because that's what comes by faith. And he says that because religion lets you down in times of trouble, as I've, I've tried to say. If you, if, you, if, if, if you are a religious person, you can't sing in the storm. You can't sail with Jesus through the storm. You can't, you can't face the future with a smile on your face if you're a religious person. You can't. Because it comes by faith. That's what Paul is trying to get them to see. So that's the first thing that I want you to to, to notice, that the bottom line, after all that Paul has said about Epaphroditus and all that's happened, the bottom line, the, the baseline for him is rejoice. The baseline for all of us in our lives is despite what is going on, good, bad, indifferent, the baseline is we rejoice. Why? Because we are in Christ and we rest in Him. Is this easy? No, but it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit as we rest in Jesus. Secondly, this wonderful gospel of freedom, of salvation by faith, by simply resting and trusting in Jesus needs to be constantly reasserted and we need to be reminded of it. That's the second thing I want to say. Look at Paul's words in the second half of of verse 1. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. In other words, Paul is saying, I've written of these things before. I've already spoken to you about these guys, the Judaizers, and I need to speak to you again about that. I want to remind you of these things that I've already spoken about. And so he's saying, I want you to stand against these people that say you have to add on to what Jesus has done whether it's by behaving in a certain way or eating certain food or obeying certain customs and festivals. No, it comes by faith in Christ alone. And Paul asserts that and reasserts that over and over again. And he says they are poor imitations. And his language we're going to look at in a short while. But he's very strong about what he's saying. And I want to put it to you that we need to stand for the true gospel in our age. And there's so many false gospels That people preach. There's the gospel of prosperity. You can go online and read a whole lot of stuff about preachers that say God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and wise. He wants you to prosper, and that's his highest goal for your life is prosperity. It sounds to me, it sounds like middle class capitalism. It doesn't sound like the gospel. It's a false gospel. What about the gospel of, the therapeutic gospel? All God wants for you is to feel good, to feel good about yourself, feel good about your future, reach your full potential, be the person that you should be on the inside. The warrior on the inside must come out. That's what God has for you. That's the best plan that He has for your life. Therapeutic gospel. It's not the gospel of salvation by resting in Jesus. It's a false gospel. My friends, my hope for our church and for you is that you can spot what is false and know what is true. And when you spot what is false, not to give your heart to that thing. That's what Paul does over and over again. I want to remind you of this so that you don't go after it. And he says these are all poor imitations of the gospel of Christ. And so thirdly, I say to you, no other gospel is to be tolerated in the church. And it's no other gospel except the gospel of free salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, can I point you to this? This, whenever, when I read this, it kind of frightens me. What does Paul say? He says, look out for the dogs. Jeepers, Paul. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That kind of jars, doesn't it? But I know this. When I read that sentence, I know this from all the other things I've read in the New Testament that Paul has written. Paul is a kind man. He's a loving man. He's a courteous man. He's a humble man. He has a heart for other people. And if anything, we can see he's consistently kind and courteous. He does not abuse other people carelessly. He doesn't. He simply doesn't. You can't read the New Testament letters and say that as a default, that he abuses people. And I've seen this. I've lived in a number of nations now. I've seen this in many churches. Too many people say they are simply being honest And speaking their minds to each other in the church when in fact they are simply unloving, unkind, rude, and show very little of the fruit of the Spirit or the character of Christ. I've seen that too often. And it's painful when you lead a church to see that. So why does Paul use such strong language when he's speaking? If he's he's a kind man, why does he use this language of Don't look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil. I mean, it's incredibly strong. Well, because for Paul, religion is vile. Religion is a disgusting thing for Paul. Why? Because he's been set free from religion. He was a very religious man who put a lot of confidence in what he was doing and the things that he was uh, set his heart after, so much so that he persecuted and killed people that disagreed with him. He knew what religion does. And so he is absolutely, his heart is set against it completely. And he says, look out for the dogs. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that was quite a common thing. It's a derogatory term that Jewish people used to describe Gentiles. Why? Because in ancient cultures, dogs were symbols of what was unclean. They carried disease, they carried rabies, and you didn't want dogs around your village because they brought bad news into your village. And so the Jews, who were nationalistic, they called Gentiles dogs, those that are unclean, those that are outside of God's people, all the rest of the world who are not Jewish, dogs, unclean ones. How do I know that? Well, well, Jesus even referenced that himself. Do you remember the story? Let's read it quickly. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. I'll read it for you. It says, there arose, Jesus arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And then he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now this woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, this is Jesus speaking, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs... Eat the crumbs from underneath your table. And Jesus said, for this statement, go home. The demon has left your daughter, and you will find her well. Was Jesus being nasty? No. He was recognizing that she was outside of God's people, and in his culture, that's how it was Expressed, and she had showed this great faith, acknowledging her position, and knowing that she wasn't part of God's people, and yet she, by faith, was responding to what Jesus wanted to do in her life. Are you with me? And so what is Paul doing? Paul is doing an incredible thing. Do you notice what he's doing? He's turning the whole thing on its head. He is saying the dogs, the unclean ones, are no longer Gentiles. The dogs, the unclean ones, are those that force you to be religious, that force you into a certain lifestyle and say, unless you do this, you are not clean. Man. Man. That is powerful. He's turning the whole thing on his head. He's saying those that force you to be circumcised to say that you need to be part of God's people, they are the unclean ones. The ones that are clean, what does he say? We are the circumcision. And what does he mean by that? We who believe by faith are the circumcision of God. You see, this is the problem with religion. It's got no power to purify your heart. No power. No power. That's why Paul says those that are religious are workers of evil. People are eager to damage the work of Christ that he was trying to, to bring people into the freedom of. And they were eager to try and rid pure and simple faith in Jesus and replace it with the gospel plus something. Jesus plus something. And Paul says, no, there's no can, you can put no confidence in that kind of thing that is a self-confident religion which ultimately leads to depression and it's unclean. It's a perversion in terms of ritual of God's good news. And so, I've already pointed this out, but let me point it out again in those verses. He says, this is true faith. Three things to find true salvation. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, one, glorify in Christ Jesus to and put no confidence in the flesh, three. So I want to talk a little bit as I conclude, and we're going to break bread, a little bit about circumcision because I find it so fascinating that Paul uses this over and over as an example. Do you remember the story of Abraham that we have studied? Do you remember Abraham? Romans 4.11, it says the son that Abraham was Part of God's people that he had been justified by faith, the son was circumcision. Do you remember that? Then this the son of becoming a new person uh, was given to Abraham when his name was changed from Abram to Abraham. He's circumcised, and that's what happens. And then circumcision is passed on from Abraham to Israel, and it distinguishes God's covenant people from all the rest of the people in the Middle East and Canaan and all over the the place. And the idea of covenant is one of the most powerful unifying themes of the Bible. And if you know your Old Testament stories, remember covenant. First, God spoke covenant to Noah and said, actually, Noah, I've made covenant with you because of what I've done in your life and my promises to you. You're not going to have to endure what everyone else does. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow. Remember? It's covenant. What about... Um, thinking of of after Abraham's life, uh, the the whole basis on which God saved his people out of Egypt was on the basis of covenant. These are my people. These are my covenant people that I will save out of slavery. And that kind of reaches a, a pinnacle with Moses, doesn't it? when he paints the, the doorposts with blood. And on the basis of that, the people are saved and the angel of death is, um, moves over their houses without causing death. And they are come out of this slavery on the basis of covenant, that they are the covenant people of God. And then if you look at the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the, the prophets, they looked forward to what? They, their language is, we look forward to a new covenant, a new covenant in which God forgives sin and remembers it no more. In fact, Ezekiel saw that new relationship with God and he said, God, in fact, in the, in the new covenant that God is gonna do, He's gonna take out your heart of stone and He's gonna give you a heart of flesh and He's gonna dwell within you. Do you remember Ezekiel prophesies that? And then Jesus brings all of those things together these amazing prophecies, the promises of Noah and Abraham and all of those things, he brings them together in one simple thing that he does. Read about in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that we who are the circumcision... Uh, and he's claiming this for himself. He's claiming this for the Philippians and for every Christian. He's saying that we who are the circumcision have the privilege of being the heirs of every single promise that God has made to His covenant people from the beginning of Genesis to now. Do you understand that? That's what he's saying. He's, he's claiming an extraordinary thing. He is saying that everything that God has ever promised for Israel... You who are the true covenant by faith, those promises are true for you. That's what he's saying. And so, it's, that's why he says we have a new heart. We are God's people from within. We've been given a new nature. Our hearts are circumcised. We inherit all the promises of God that were given to Abraham, to Noah, to the people of God, because we are the new Israel of God. That's what Paul is saying. It is an extraordinary, wonderful, marvelous, to be wondered at thing. Don't skip over it. And in your own life, don't let your tendency to go towards being religious. Fight it with everything that you have. Learn as best as you can, as best as I can, to rest in the completed work of Christ, to rest in what He's done, that He can set you free to live joyfully, we are the circumcision. So a true Christian is someone who worships by the Spirit of God, who glorifies in Christ Jesus, who puts no confidence in the flesh, in who we, what we can do out of our own initiative. And so as we break bread this morning, I'd like us to consider some things and just be honest in our own hearts, in our own lives. How, how are you really, what are you pushing into when you live, as you live? Uh, I, I'm not accusing anyone, but it's, it's good to kind of just evaluate. What are you pushing into as you live your life? Do you have perhaps like a little bit of national religion in your life? You know, you might find yourself saying things like this. Oh, no, it's okay. I was born into a Christian family. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a Christian home. Yeah, that, that's enough. I, I was born into a Christian family, grew up in a Christian home. Well, can I say kindly to you that God has no grandchildren? He only has sons and daughters. He doesn't have grandsons and great grandchildren. He has sons and daughters that come by faith. All of us that believe by faith are sons and daughters. God doesn't have any grandchildren. You can't inherit the kingdom of God from your parents. It comes by faith as you surrender your life to Christ. Do you, do you push into your own moral code? Do you, have you settled in your life that you have certain traditions, that you have certain things that you live by? Do you find yourself saying, well, you know, I try to be a good person. I haven't hurt anybody. And who, who am I to judge anyone else that they're not living right anyway? You know, there are many ways to God and we all need to just find our own way. That's enough for me. See, Paul says that is, that is self-confident religion. That's relying on what you can do. That's religiosity. And that's not resting your faith in Jesus. And he says, what he said in this passage, is that that actually that just leads to joylessness. It leads to uh, a religious existence that does nothing to change your heart. And the worst part about it is when the crunch comes and you look to religion, it has no power and does nothing. And you are in this desperate place and you think God has left you. Why? Because you've been following ritual and religion and not resting in Him by faith. And that's a desperate place to be. So Paul says, let's live by simple faith in Jesus. I'm saying to you, let's live by resting our lives simply by faith in Jesus. That is walking by the Spirit. Jesus, what do you want me to do today? How can my life today rest in you? Who do you want me to speak to? Who do you want me to encourage? How can I be encouragement to my husband, my wife, my kids, those that love me? How can I practically live out this freedom that you've given with your own blood? How can I live it out today? That's walking by the Spirit. That's trusting in Him day by day. And so I want to encourage you. Will you let Jesus come and change you from the inside? Will you let Jesus come and change you from the inside? Will you rest your faith in Him for your life going forward and not trust in your cunning plan to make something happen? That's what living by faith is, saying, Jesus, I have a plan, but actually I'm resting in your plan and your sovereign plan for my life. And you can change it if you think it's good for me. And that's walking by faith. Amen.